We're going to be in Acts chapter 24 tonight. Acts chapter 24. Go ahead and be turning there. And as you're turning there, I kind of realized uh, through study and through preparing for the messages we've been going through and the messages we're going to go through in the days ahead, um, that there's kind of a, we've been doing a walk through the book of Acts and um, a pretty fast survey walk through. And we've been covering a chapter per sermon and you could break it down to hundreds of sermons per chapter. Um, but uh, we've been kind of moving kind of quickly. And as I saw uh, the messages I have preached in the last couple of chapters and the message we're going to preach tonight and uh, the messages in the days ahead, um, I've seen like a, a sort of a mini-series there in it and I um, want to entitle it Christianity on Trial. Christianity on Trial. Because we have Paul here standing in the shoes of Christ as Christ was put on trial and, and was uh, mocked and scourged and was made fun of by those Sanhedrin and those Pharisees. And we know, uh, we know the story of Calvary and that uh, he opened not his mouth even though all those accusations were made against him. And now we have Paul being put right back in the same situation. And it was not... Uh, Christianity, or it was not Paul necessarily being put on trial. It wasn't uh, what anything specific Paul did. It was the belief and the, the 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 relationship Paul had with Christ that was being put on trial. And we know that guilt verse, <coughs> uh, the first chapter we preached in this little series, we talked about how Paul looked at him and he said, "Guilty as charged, guilty for uh, being a nobody, guilty of knowing somebody, and guilty of trying to tell everybody." And then uh, we know God and uh, Paul had a conversation there in that barracks in that castle in that uh, confined area he was in and he said you know Paul this is going to hurt this is going to hurt but there's some things I want you to remember and then tonight we're going to be in Acts 24 and if you're there stand with me and look let your eyes fall on verse 10 Christianity on trial and tonight we're going to look at a little bit different of a message but I encourage you as the chapters go ahead we've seen Paul be confronted by the Sanhedrin and there in Jerusalem and then we've seen those Roman soldiers intervene and he's been heard his case there and tonight we're going to see him appear before a Roman governor and then in the days ahead we're going to see him uh, appear before a Roman king and then in the days further ahead we're going to see him appear uh, before Caesar and it is very tempting to say, oh, these, in my young mind, we're saying this is the same message over and over again. But we will find and through these passages that there is something very specific. Paul seizes those opportunities and the Holy Spirit through Paul has messages for us in each and every one of those presentations, each and every one of those defenses Paul makes. So we're going to look at uh, one of those tonight. Chapter number 24 and verse number 10. Chapter number 24 and verse number 10. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because thou, that thou mayest understand that there are yet twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. And they neither found me in the temple, disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither the synagogues, nor in the city. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Tonight I want to preach on this thought. What they call heresy, I call worship. Father, thank you so much for your word. 
Thank you so much for what Paul did in his ministry and what you allowed Paul to be a part of. And even in the sufferings of Paul, in these days of his trials, and these days of his imprisonments, God, I pray that we pull each and every detail we can out of these passages of Scripture. God, we know it will help us. We know it's your word, and we know that it's enough. God, I pray that you clear all hearts and minds tonight. I know there are many distractions that may seek to have people's minds on other things. But God, I pray that you bring all their minds not to focus on a building, not to focus on a preacher, God, but to focus on their Savior tonight. God, help them to grow. Help them to hear what you have to say to them. And I pray and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You can be seated. So there in our text, we find Paul giving his defense before a Roman governor. Um, and we left Paul at the end of the last chapter. He was uh, snatched, if we remember. Uh, he was having that conversation with God about when it's going to hurt. And God told him, remember who is beside you. Remember who is behind you. And remember who goes before you. And we know he was having that conversation because the military leader, that chief captain, had snatched him out of the, the pit of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Remember, Paul was standing before them and uh, he began to see that they were two different parties there of the Sanhedrin. And he spit out something about the resurrection and he got them arguing. He got them fussing and fighting. Turn me down a little bit, sir. Uh, <clears throat> he got them fussing and fighting and it became so violent it became so intense um, that the military guard snatched him out of there and he put him uh, put him back in the castle put him back in that Roman barracks and uh, the chief captain could not make heads or tails of Paul's case and he knew then he started to realize that an angry mob had started to form outside that barracks outside that jail cell you see those uh, Jews they figured hey if this chief captain that they that he took him from us if he decides to let him go if he decides to turn Paul loose we'll form this angry mob of about 40 men we'd find out and we'll jump him. we'll take care of this ourselves if the Romans aren't going to do anything about it but nevertheless if the Romans are going to protect him We'll wait till the Romans try to transport him, and we'll take care of them, uh, this problem ourselves. If you look at chapter 23 and verse number 14, uh, you'll find uh, the Bible says, And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will, not, that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now therefore, ye would the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow as though he would inquire something more perfectly concerning him and we, wherever he come near, are ready to kill him. All right, so we see this angry mob, this conspiracy be formed. The Jews had gotten together and they said they had made their mind up. We're going we're gonna to call for the chief captain. We're going to tell him to bring him before us again. And when he does, we are going to kill this man. Now, the chief captain had found himself in kind of a pickle because we remember last week, Roman had, uh, Paul had produced evidence of his Roman citizenship. And now he was protected under the laws of Rome. So this chief captain can't make heads or tails of the situation. So he decides this is above my pay grade, okay? This was the, the chief captain of, these, of this centurion of soldiers. This was the chief captain over these men. And he pretty much decides, he looks at this angry mob forming, he hears about it. He's got to protect Paul as a Roman citizen. But at the same time, he doesn't quite understand Paul. He doesn't quite understand what Paul's trying to get across. And he makes a decision, this is above my pay grade. I'm sending Paul up the chain. And we'll look in chapter 23 and verse 23. Here's what he does. Uh, and he, being the chief captain, called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen, threescore and ten, and spearmen, two hundred, in the third hour of the night. So here we have 
this large group of soldiers sent to accompany Paul. He knew there was an angry mob. Can you imagine the look on the angry mob's face when they see all these soldiers coming out of this military barracks, this castle, and they're marching towards Caesarea, and right there in the middle of them where no harm can come to them is Paul. You see, they had turned Paul over to the Romans, and the very device that they were seeking to get Paul killed with is now protecting him from this angry mob. And they are marching him to Caesarea to stand before the governor. And this governor was named Felix, and we're going to look at chapter number 24, and we're going to kind of look up and lead and see what happens and leads up to Paul's defense here. So we've reviewed a little bit of how Paul made his way out of that barracks. The chief captain says, hey, this is above my pay grade. He orders this... this trip to Caesarea to stand before Felix. And in chapter number 24, first thing we're going to see, first thing we're going to see in chapter number 24 is a simple, simple task. Uh, Not, excuse me, not a simple task, a silent time. All right, verse number one. And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain order named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. After five days... So we see Paul make it to Caesarea, and Felix, the governor, sees what's happening, and he sees the chief captain say, hey, this man has an angry mob after him. They want to kill him, but I can't find anything that he's done wrong. This is above my pay grade, Felix. You deal with him. You see this case. You figure out why they want to kill him. You figure out if he's innocent or he's guilty. You take this. Well, Felix wisely waits. It says after five days, Felix begins to form this formal tribunal or this formal trial, and he waits for the accused the prosecution to arrive. And there's a silent time here of about five days. Can you imagine the five days in Paul's eyes, the five days in Paul's supporters' eyes? Luke is writing this. So whether he's there in person or watching from afar off or, you know, sending word or sending message, the supporters and the followers of Paul, they've got five days here leading up to this trial, leading up to this next step up the ladder of Paul defending himself and Paul making his case. And this five days is very important because it creates a suspense. It creates something where people are starting to focus. People are starting to to listen in. The area of Caesarea would have become overwhelmed with this tension that would have been building up. And that was followed by a silver tongue. You see, the chief priest, remember, he looked at Paul in the last passage of Scripture and he commanded those soldiers to smite Paul across the mouth. And Paul called him out for his hypocrisy. Paul called him out for his behavior. And Paul called him out for doing things contrary to the law and then trying to judge Paul by the law. So the chief captain thought he'd be slick this time and he'd bring with him a silver tongue. We saw in verse number one, and he brought a certain orator named Tertullus who informed the governor against Paul. Listen to the silver tongue. So we see this orator, this man that the high priest brought with him, and he begins to speak in verse number two. And when he was called for, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness. He's talking to the governor here. He's talking to Felix. See with thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done to this nation by thy providence. We accept it always in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness, notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee. This shouldn't even be wasting your time, O noble Felix. In verse number four, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes who also hath gone about to profane the temple whom we took and would have judged according to our law. 
But the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee, by examining of whom thyself may take knowledge of all these things, whereof we accuse him. So you see this silver tongue here, this man that gets up and he begins to make this eloquent speech. He begins to go before Felix and say, oh, noble Felix, you've done such a good job governing us. You've done such a good job ruling over us. Oh, Felix, this is a complete waste of your time. You see, Felix, this man, you know, he's a wicked and a vile man and he's causing us all these problems. And Felix, we were perfectly willing to deal with him ourselves and by our own laws, but your chief captain snatched him away, took him by much violence. You see how much of it, this is a waste of your time, Felix? You see how, you see how this, or the silver tongue is beginning to downplay and beginning to try to silence and begin to do everything he can for Felix to say, you know what? You're right. You take him. You deal with him. Because the silver tongue wants no part of what's about to come out of Paul's mouth. He does not want the truth to be spoken. He does not want the truth to be proclaimed. He does not want to give Paul any chance to reach this governor, to preach to this governor, to tell him the testimony of Jesus Christ. These silver tongues are everywhere. These silver tongues are still around today. They seek to pervert. They seek to lie. Why? Because the devil is a liar. The devil is the father of lies. The devil is the author of confusion. And that's exactly what we see here. We see a man get up <clears throat> and begin to try to muddy the waters yet again, begin to try to think that this governor is just wasting his time, think that this governor is just going to just pass it off and brush it off and say, you know what, you're right. This is a waste of my time. Deal with them. These silver tongues are everywhere today. And it's because the devil is very, very good at this. The devil's been doing this a long time. The, he got me today with that little Facebook ad. I thought, by God, they're threatening to arrest this preacher. And I got upset and I got angry and I got up and I said about it. Turns out, no, they did order that the church cease and desist. And that's very wrong and very vile and very contradictory. But nowhere in that article did they ask for the arrest of the preacher. But there was something that the devil knew that would get me in my flesh. And he got me. That's just a classic example of how he gets us, isn't it? He uses that silver tongue and he begins to paint pictures and he begins to be artistic in his lies and he begins to be artistic in his confusion and he'll paint a picture that looks so bleak. He'll paint a picture that looks so pretty and nice on the outside, but on the inside, its only goal, its only purpose is to wreck your testimony, wreck your life, ruin your speech to where when you even do open your mouth, no one's going to listen. And that's what this silver tongue was seeking to do here. And now we see a simple task. Verse number nine, and the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. So the Jews began to back up what the silver tongue was saying. They said, yeah, he's telling the truth, Felix. Listen to him. And then in verse number 10, we see, then Paul, after the governor had beckoned with him. All right. We have to know what's in between verse number nine and verse number 10. We have to know what's here. The governor had realized that there is now a prosecution against Paul. The governor, after hearing the words of this silver tongue, now realized he had a decision to make. That there was an accusation made against a man who every, every, every other person had told him, this man has done nothing wrong. And as he was forming his opinion, he knew that what would come out of his mouth would signify and would either doom or free this man. And that is exactly what I'm trying to get at tonight when I say the words Christianity is on trial here in America. It's on trial here. And it's not in a court of law. It's not 
uh, on the media. It's not on the news. Christianity is on trial in the hearts of lost people all over this nation because they hear about this God and they hear about the Judeo-Christian values that this nation was founded on. And they're wondering, could they possibly be true? Could they possibly be what we're missing? Could they possibly be what's caused our nation to fall apart? And they're at the moment here that Felix was at and they were, they're in the limbo of making the decision as Felix was in between verse 9 and 10. Am I going to listen? Am I going to hear the words that this man has to say? And it would be what Paul said that made the difference. Look at verse number 10. We see a simple or a saint's testimony in verse number 10. Here's what Paul says. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully to answer for myself, because that thou mayest understand that there are yet twelve days since I went to Jerusalem. He said, Twelve days have gone by, sir, and they neither found me in the temple, disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, neither can they prove the things which they now accused me. But this I confess the end of thee. Here's Paul's summary of his answer and his defense. That that which they call heresy, so worship I, the God of my fathers, believing all things that are written in the law and in the prophets. He said, sir, governor, they're calling heresy what I call worship. What they're calling breaking the law is me calling serving my Lord and my Savior. What they're calling in today's terms hate speech. What they're calling bigotry. What they're calling wrong. What they're calling old-fashioned. What they're calling crazy. What they're calling radical. What they're calling religious. I call worship. And Paul was standing before this man and he wanted to simply explain to them exactly what it was he was doing. And what we have to understand today is that the thing that will help our communities, the thing that will help our city, the thing that will help our country, the thing that may even help our continents across this globe is if the people that are standing where Felix was standing and that are trying to figure this whole thing out and they're searching for truth and they're searching for what is right and they're searching for what is wrong, the thing that will make a difference is if there's a church of the living God that will get back to worshiping their Creator and saying, that what you call wrong, what you call crazy, what you call radical, what you call old-fashioned, I call worship. Tonight we're going to preach on the subject of worship. And before you put that image in your head of that person that may sit over here, may sit over there, that you feel like they never worship, they never get into the service, they never shout and raise their hand, they never cry, they never do this, I want you to understand something, that everybody worships in a different way. That everybody, every individual is created individually and they're loved individually and they're saved individually. But at the same time, God called us. He made us to worship. He made us to worship. And I would submit that the reason people are in that position Felix is in and they're trying to decide about this thing of Christianity. Christianity's on trial and they're trying to see, is it real? Is it fake or is it phony? They're not looking at the Bible. They don't believe the Bible. They don't, they don't understand what the Bible is. They don't, they don't really comprehend the Bible. They're not looking at the televangelists. They're not looking at uh, what the TV says they should believe. They're not looking at the media. They're looking at you and they're looking at me and they're watching how we worship. Is it real? Is it fake? Is it true? Is it phony? Is it a show? Or is it sincere? 
And Paul wanted to make it very clear to Felix, I am only guilty of worshiping my Creator. Tonight, the subject of worship. Worship, number one, calls for belief. Look at verse number 14. Verse number 14, one more time. But this I confess unto thee, that after they which call, after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers. Here's this first word, believing. All things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Sometimes we buy into the lie that we have gotten so used to losing. We've gotten so used to the world seeming to get all the victories. We've gotten so used to the world seeming to uh, taking over all the court systems and all the laws and all the legislature. And we've seen the world change right before our eyes. There are men and women in this room that have literally lived from a time where the church was alive and the church was thriving and people feared God and the lawmakers feared God and they've watched their country, they've watched their world change into a place that pushes back and rejects the God of their fathers and pushes away. And the reason that that is is because they failed to see a church that was worshiping and that believed that believed believed what he said i believe in the god of my fathers believing in verse number 14 towards the end all things which are written in the law so what are we to believe all things which are written in the law, but we got something more than Paul had. We got the letters that he would write. We got the rest of the New Testament. We got the four Gospels. Believing His Word. Believing His Word. And surely it can't be that simple. Surely worship, if you don't believe your Bible, if you don't read your Bible, you'll never get to be able to believe. It is hard to believe in something. It is hard to understand something that you never put time into reading. It is hard to believe in something that you never quite fully understand because you don't ask the Holy Spirit to reveal things to you because you don't prayerfully study the Word of God. And the church abroad, the church nationwide has gotten to the point, and as we've said, this affects people like you and this affects people like me because I know one thing, when I sit down and I try to really get into my Bible and I try to really dive deep, that's when the distractions come. That's when the phone calls come. That's when the situations that I call it the sky is falling situations. You got people that approach you from every angle and the sky is falling and you're the only one in Chattanooga, Tennessee that can solve this problem and you're the only one in Chattanooga, Tennessee that can drop what they're doing and go help this problem. It is always at those times when I'm trying to dive deeper and understand more about my word and understand more about my Savior that Satan will dive in and Satan to distract. And if we would just get back and believing that it's true and believing in his promises and believing in his prophecies and believing in exactly that what it says is what it says and that there's no need to change it. There's no need to back up on it. There's no need to water it down. If we'll get back to believing his word, we'll get things right. When I went down to Florida, I got to talking to my great grandfather who's been a preacher for 60 plus years and I asked him he said does your church give an altar call I said well of course pop we give an altar call and he said you know how all that was started and he began to explain about the moody crusades and things like that and he said I'm all for altar calls he said if you uh, bring people to a point of a decision then that, that's fine and uh, I don't believe there's anything unscriptural about that he said but you know and he made this statement and it has stuck with me ever since he said the word used to be enough 
And I said, what are you talking about, Papa? What he said, well, we didn't have to have an altar call because when the word was being preached, there would be preachers that would just simply stand up and read the word of God. They wouldn't have to add an outline to it. They wouldn't have had to add homily or illustration or any of those things. They wouldn't have had to say anything else besides the word of God. And as they got to verse number three, so-and-so would maybe begin to fall out in the aisle or make their way to an altar and begin to pray and to begin to get right. And as they'd make it to verse seven, somebody else would be affected by verse seven and they would come to an altar and they would begin to do business with God. And as they got to verse number 13, so-and-so that needed verse number 13 would come and get back to the altar. Why? Because that the very Word of God was enough for people to understand what God was dealing with them in their hearts. And the very Word of God alone was all that was necessary. And Paul was telling this man, I worship the God of my fathers because I believe in the Word that He gave to Moses. I believe in the words that He gave to the prophets. And I'm seeing right before my eyes, Mr. Felix, the fulfillment of prophecy. And the only way he could have known that is because he believed his Bible. Sometimes we get so used to losing. I use sports a lot when talking with the teenagers. Sometimes teams get so used to losing, they don't even believe they can win anymore. Sometimes, church, we get there. We get so used to trying to give those Bible verses and read those Bible verses and, and, throw, and put those Bible verses out and, and promote those Bible verses. And we get so used to, from the outside, seeing that they're being rejected, that nobody's listening. To, and we get tricked into thinking that we believe they don't work anymore. But you ask these teachers in the KFC program, how true is the scripture, my word shall not return unto me void? You're sitting up there and you're going through those lessons and, it, and you think those kids aren't listening to a thing in the world you're saying. And on the bus ride home, you hear them back there saying the verse. Or on the bus ride, the, the very next, a whole week's gone by. They've slept seven nights, hopefully, since the last time you saw them. And they come up to you and they start talking to you about last week's lesson. Why? Because his word and the power of his word and the belief in his word is not dependent on you and me. It's not dependent on our ability. It's not dependent on what we have. And if we would get back to simply believing the Word of God for what it is and accepting the fact that it is enough and we don't have to add our own wisdom to it, we don't have to add our own beliefs or opinions to it, we don't have to say, well, this is what the Bible says, but, you know, and, and that's the conversation that everyone, Pastor, I know what the Bible says about this, but I... Mm -mm. The Word used to be enough. The Word was enough for Paul. The word ought to be enough for you and me. If we get back to believing his word, our worship will pick up. Our worship will pick up, not just his word, but his will. God is in control. He is on the throne and he wants you to walk like you know who holds tomorrow. What is that? That's believing his will. That's believing that Romans 8.28 is true. See, it all stems back to going back to the Word. But believing His will, believing that no matter what happens to you, no matter what circumstances change, no matter what atmospheres change around you, or what this job or that job or these travels or that travels, that God is on the throne. Is your worship dictated by a belief in His will or by your own worry? You cannot worry and worship simultaneously. Did you know that? You cannot worry and have faith simultaneously. Did you know that? And the Bible says without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. 
It is very hard to have worship and to have inward worship towards your Creator that is pleasing to God when the inward parts of you are filled to the brim with worry and filled to the brim with anxiety. I don't know if it's helping you, but this helped me because I'm one of those people that I don't share it with anybody. I don't tell anybody I'm stressed out. I don't tell no, in Southern vernacular, I don't tell nobody that I'm upset or that things are affecting me. But on the inside, my glass is filling up, not with joy, not with grace, but with worry and anxiety because we get in our flesh and we get in our own wisdom and we haven't worshiped like we ought to in a while and we haven't stopped to realize that we got to believe that He's in control and not just say it, not just click a like on a post on online, not just share a post or not just tell somebody that you go to such and such Baptist church and talk about how great the preacher is or talk about how great the choir is or talk about how great the carpet is or how well the air conditioning works, but you believe in a sovereign creator, that you believe that there's a man a God on the throne, 100% man, 100% God, as He came down and became flesh and died for you and me, that there's a Creator in heaven that He's not like a high priest that can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but in all ways was tested as you and I are, and that while He's sitting there, while He's under control, He knows what you're dealing with. He knows what you're going through. He was right there with you, and He is on the throne. Your worship will pick up when you start believing that His will is His will. And you accept it. And that's not always fun. That's not always dandy. Because His will is most of the time not our will. Majority of the time, His will is not our will. But He sees the end of the road. I love that song. Even in the valley, God is good. Even in the valley... He is faithful and true. You know why? Because He sees your end game. He sees things in eternal perspective. He knows what's around the bend. My worship's just not what it used to be. Do you believe His Word? Do you believe His will? Maybe you've never worshipped Him at all because you don't believe in His welcome. Do you understand? Us Christians, we get in the way a lot of times because we start like I said earlier, adding our wisdom and adding our comments and our uh, suggestions. And Do you understand how welcoming our Savior is? Do you understand that since that day on Calvary, eternity before it and eternity after it, He's standing with His arms outstretched, saying, come. Come. Our worship will pick up when we start to realize that His welcome to you and me is not dependent on us. It's not dependent on how good we are. It's not dependent on how few times we mess up. I've never worshipped like I wish I could worship. I've never quite understood how somebody could cry over their salvation. I've never understood how people could go to church and just get so overwhelmed with how thankful they are. I want what that person has. I want. Have you ever received His welcome? Have you ever taken the consideration that He gave His Son for you? Oh, this is too simple, preacher. We didn't come on a Sunday night to hear something this simple. I hope you did, because your Bible's full of it. His welcome. His welcome. Do you believe in His welcome? As Christianity stands on trial, do you believe He welcomes the homosexual? Do you believe He welcomes the drug addict? Now, you say you do. You say, well, they come walking in the door. Okay? Don't lie to me. I'm just like you. Do you believe in His welcome? 
because your worship will pick up when you get your eyes on what they look like and what they look like and get back on who he is and who he welcomes and who he died for and who he loves and who he cares about. Now, you know as well as I do, he commandeth all men everywhere to what? Repent. Repent. He doesn't want them to continue in those lifestyles because those lifestyles lead to hell. But that does not change his welcome to those individuals. Belief. Worship calls for belief. Number two, worship creates hope. Look at verse number 15. He said back in 14, So worship I, the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Worship will create hope. As people are looking at you, and they're looking at me, do they see somebody to that worships their Creator to the point that they have hope? Hope in what? Well, we see, first thing Paul talks about was that resurrection, his return. He's coming back for you, and he's coming back for me, for his bride. Your worship won't pick up unless you realize that there's a Creator coming back to pick you up. Your worship won't pick up unless you get a hold of the fact that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is coming back to pick you up. That His kingdom, His heavenly kingdom, that golden city, that pearly white city will not be complete without you. He wants you there. Your worship will pick up. Your worship will pick up when you start having hope in that. The world don't want you to have hope in that. The world wants you to worry. The world wants you to have anxiety. The world wants you to be depressed. The world wants you to be angry and bitter and mad so that you can forget about that blessed hope. Hope for His righteousness, His return and His righteousness. Look at what Paul says, for the just. Coming back for the just. The, for the resurrection, for the just. Now, Paul knew as well as you and I knew that when Christ comes back for the just, what makes us just is not us, is it? It's His righteousness that has been imputed to us that has been placed on our lives, that has been placed on our te testimony. This morning we sang a song, In the book tis written, Saved by Grace. He had hope in the fact that when Jesus comes back, that Paul didn't have to worry of whether or not he was going to pass the test or not because he knew Jesus had already passed it. He didn't have to worry that when, G when Christ came back for him, Am I going to tip the scale to the good direction? And am I going to be able to plead my case? Know why? Because the case had already been settled. The case had already been paid for. I always tell people that believe you can lose your salvation that they can't read. Because Jesus said, it is finished. He didn't get up there and say, it is in layaway. He didn't get up there and say, you are partially bought with a partial price. He didn't preach and say, I've gone to prepare a place for you in case you show up. No, 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 no. Paul had hope in the fact that his righteousness was as filthy rags. So he possessed, he was given Christ's righteousness on his own account. And not just for his return, his righteousness, but hope also for his wrath. Paul says in verse number 15, Resurrection of the dead, both of the just, the righteous in Christ, and the unjust. 
That's the ones that God will pour out his wrath on in the day of judgment. Is not nice as the world will tell you it is. The clock is ticking. God's dispensation of grace will come to an end. It will come to an end. The Bible clearly states that his hand of wrath is being stayed by the presence of the Holy Spirit here on earth. And that when that Holy Spirit is taken out of the way along with the bride of Christ, that that hand of wrath and that hand of judgment will fall. And that the people that have been lying, the people that were there accusing Paul, the people that were uh, angry there in Jerusalem and in Caesarea and in the future Rome, the people that are shouting and yelling and, and, and hateful and mean and have rebelled and rejected the gospel and have heard the gospel and have rejected. And not only have they rejected, but they have become anti-Christ. They have become reprobate. They have become to the point where God has turned them over to a reprobate mind. All of those people, those unjust, Paul, we're talking about those that have said no to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that wrath is coming to give them exactly what they ask for, an eternity separated from God. An eternity separated from God. That's what they want. They do not want to spend eternity with God. They reject God. So Paul said, I had hope that all these vile, evil, wicked people that know what he's noticed what he said. He said they're unjust. He wasn't upset at them for what they were doing to Paul. He wasn't upset at them for what they were doing to the people, he was upset at them for rejecting the Lamb of God. And that there's wrath appointed for those people. Worship calls for belief. It creates hope. And lastly, worship causes exercise. Look at verse number 16. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. And here I do also exercise. Herein do I exercise myself. I want to ask this question. Do you, and it's a trivial question, it's a simple question, it's a, it's a youth ministry type question, but do you exercise your worship muscles? Do you exercise your worship muscles? If, if somebody, let's say <clears throat> Brett up there, Jacob up there, they got decided that they're going to go out and try, find, start trying to find a young lady to begin courting. And they find out that the young ladies like those guys with those big old cannon arms. All right? the, the ladies used to like that. Now they like the softer type. But they found out that the lady they were trying to court and trying to get the attention really liked them big old cannonballs on the biceps. All right? you know, those Popeye, the sailor man arms. You understand what I'm saying? All right? What would they do? They'd have to begin to go out, get something heavy, and start curling them things, and start trying to fill their muscles up with blood. And, start, and what they would quickly realize is it's not like an air pump. You go, S -s 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 -s. all right, there they are. What they would soon realize is that there's not enough spinach in the whole world to peel a can of spinach back, throw it down, and make those arms just pull. That that's the movies. What they would soon realize, in order to get those muscles to grow, in order to get those muscles to change the way they look, to change what they're made of, they begin to have to expose those muscles to discomfort, to pain, to anguish. 
pop those muscles outside of their comfort zone. Some of you men know what I'm talking about. You haven't been to the gym in forever, and the first time you go back, your muscles are looking at you going, you ain't picked up nothing but a Gatorade bottle in 10 years, and now you're trying to expect me to pick up a 20-pound dumbbell? You have lost your mind. And they're screaming, and they're yelling at you. And the next day, you wake up, and you go, hey, honey, and you go to give her a hug, and your arms are like this. You can't straighten them out all the way. And they say, honey, here's And you go, thank you. Have you exercised your worship muscles? Have you exposed them to something outside of their comfort zone? I'm not saying that everybody ought to scream and shout and holler and run the aisle. Some of you may. That may be how you worship. Carry on. As long as it's decent and in order. But some of you haven't exercised your worship muscles since about a week after you got saved. Some carnal Christian got a hold of you and said, I'll sit down and listen to the preacher and hush. And you ain't stopped hushing since that day. Your worship muscles are weak. So how do you exercise them? You have to exercise them. We'll go through these quick. Exercise them individually. Get this. Look what Paul says. Verse number 16. And herein do I exercise myself. How many of you wish somebody else could go to the gym for you? You know what? You, go, you run on the treadmill for me and just get, let me know the tally and I'll, I'll chalk it up to my calories and I'll feel good about myself that day. No, it don't work like that, does it? Uh-uh. Your worship muscles don't work that way either. No one else can worship for you. Your daddy can't worship for you. Your mama can't worship for you. Your friend can't worship for you. Your granddaddy that was a pastor. The golden answer. My grandpa that was a pastor, he can't worship for you. My son, who he goes to church all the time, he, he can't worship for you. You want to stop with the worrying and the disbelief and the anxiety? Start working your worship muscles. Even if it's on the inside. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I'm not asking everybody to be conformed to some kind of worship standard. I'm not saying that. But when was the last time your creator looked down at you and he said, I see you. Looked at your heart said, I hear you, young lady. I hear you, young man. Nobody else hears you, but I hear your heart. I hear your gratitude. It's going to happen if you exercise it individually. I myself, Paul said, no one's making me do this. Felix, no one's making me do this. I'm doing this. How many of you could honestly say, growing up, I was one of them. The only time you did something for God is when somebody made you do it. The only time you went to church, somebody made you come to church. Somebody guilt you, guilt tripped you come to church. You never wanted to do it individually. Paul said, I, I do this of my own accord. Exercise individually. Exercise intensely. Look at what he says. And I exercise myself to have good conscience toward God. Look at this. We may be doing, as we used our illustration earlier... We like to make ourselves stand in certain ways to make our muscles look a certain way so that we can fool them, so that we can put up a facade. You can't fake your worship towards God. He said it'd be no offense toward God. God doesn't even have to look down to know if you're worshiping or not. God doesn't even have to say, all right, everything stop. Let me examine Bryce, see if he's worshiping me today. He knows if you're going to fake it before you even know if you're going to fake it. 
You can't fake worship your way through this thing with him. You may be able to fool your preacher. You may be able to fool your worship team or your worship leader, your song leader. You may be able to fool your friends. You may be able to fool your girlfriend. You may be able to fool your boyfriend. You may be able to fool your husband, fool your wife, but you can't fool God. As Christianity stands on trial, are you exercising your worship intensely toward your Creator? Are you doing things for real? Are you doing things? Are you worshiping Him? Are you grateful towards Him? Are you walking with Him and talking with Him? And you're not trying to pull the wool over His eyes. David said, search me, O God. You know what David didn't realize? God didn't have to search. God didn't have to dig very far. He can look at David and immediately know where his heart is. He looks at you and looks at me and he knows where our heart is. And lastly, exercise intentionally. Look at what he says. Verse number 16. Good conscience, void of offense toward God and men. And toward men. Why did he throw that one in there? Did Paul really care what men thought about him? We know we've seen Paul's life. He liked to let her rip tater chip. He liked to say it even if it offended everyone in the room. He liked to preach it straight, even if it made everybody mad. But here Paul says, and I try to keep a good conscience toward God and also toward men. Why was that important? It's the same reason it's important in 2020. Because Christianity is on trial. And they're looking at you and they're looking at me and they're looking at our worship. And if you worship God on Sunday... And you wear the tie or you wear the, the best outfit you got and you come and you give your best to God on Sunday, but you go in and you cuss out your coworker on Monday, your worship is not going to cut it toward men. Your worship is not going to lead anybody to the Christ. Your worship is the only Bible a lot of the people in this world will ever read. How you talk about your Savior, how you believe in His Word, how you believe in His will, how you believe in His welcome, how you hope for His return, how you hope for His righteousness, how you hope for His wrath, how you exercise individually and exercise intensely and exercise intentionally, how you do these things every day, day in and day out, accepting the fact that you're not perfect, accepting the fact that God doesn't need you, but He chooses to use you, accepting the fact that you're never going to be what you ought to be, but you're going to make a decision to worship your Creator, eat and every day that will be what makes the difference in the people around you's lives. That'll be what fills these pews up. That'll be what fills the sanctuary up one day is when the people around you and you and me and them realize there's a place here where they're worshiping God. There's a place here filled with people who worship God every day, not just on Sunday. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life and ministry of Paul. God, I pray tonight as we examine our own worship. God, I pray. God, convict in the areas of disbelief. Convict in the areas of losing hope. And convict in the areas of not exercising what we say we believe. God, I pray tonight as your church, your bride, your sweetheart here at Anchor of Hope. God, you know I love these people. God, you know I love each and every family here. You know how much love I've felt towards me and my family in these recent days and recent months. God, but I pray you help us to never grow complacent. You help us to never reach the point where we think we can't do better. We can't worship better, more pleasing to you. God, we know it's all going to start with me, the individual, 
the one who stands before you when no one else is around. God, I pray and I ask that you speak to your people's hearts. You encourage them. You give them love, grace, and mercy in these trying and difficult times. God, I pray and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll see everybody back Wednesday night at 645. You are dismissed.